apartment with 50 people and brought back, uh, I think almost all 50. I can't, I lost track. Uh, and we had wonderful experiences. Some were uh, unanticipated. One morning, I got a call from a lady. She said, can you come down to our room right away? My mother just fell in the bathroom and hit her head and she's bleeding profusely. Uh, so I went down, and sure enough, she was bleeding profusely. Uh, but she was conscious, and uh, that was good. And having a conversation, so I'm not a medical person, but that looked like it was good. And then some of the – we were staying at a kibbutz hotel. A kibbutz is a collective agricultural place. But sometimes they have hotels where guests could stay for added income, and we were in one of them. So the kibbutz people came – and applied a compress to stop the bleeding. And we had a couple of nurses in our group, which was so very, very helpful. And our nurses came, and uh, one of them, uh, Paul, has no feelings. Did you know that, uh, Paul? He just takes off the compress, and he peels back. I'm, this is before breakfast. He just, like this is normal behavior for him, he just peels back. Yep, she needs stitches, is what he, what he says. So... Uh, I called our guide. Uh, some of you know him, Ronnie Cohen. He, he spoke here some months ago. And I said, Ronnie, can you come? We need a little help. And uh, we needed to take her to the hospital. And since he spoke Hebrew, he had to, he had to do this. And he has like no bedside manner. He is, <laughs> he is horrible. <laughs> but, but he spoke the language. So off they went to the hospital, which meant uh, I, I had the privilege of leading our group on the bus uh, at Kfar Nachum. Kfar Nachum. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say that? <laughs> Capernaum is Kfar Nachum. Capernaum means village of Nahum, not the prophet Nahum, somebody else named Nahum. We can't identify. Anyway, so I, uh, I faked it, to tell you the truth. Uh, in, in his absence. And then later that day, here comes our guide with this wonderful lady, little small lady like this from Mississippi with her twin sister from Alabama, cute as could be, and with an interesting um, kind of a headdress to, with bandages and so on. And she was able to complete the whole trip. No dizziness, no headaches, no imbalance, nothing, nothing like that. So that was just a wonderful, wonderful blessing. Then... We're on a road at the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is south. And we were, at the time, just 20 minutes away from the hotel we were going to stay in right on the Dead Sea, 20 minutes away. Well, we can't get there. There's a roadblock. There's police and traffic and all the rest. And apparently, Jerusalem received two months, the equivalent of two months' worth of rain in one day. And so... It can't receive, Jerusalem's high, so the, the water flows down, and we were down at the Dead Sea, though quite a distance from Jerusalem, the water has no place to go. It fills up these dry riverbed things called wadis, and flood conditions can take place uh, almost without notice. So the road ahead of us received a mudslide, and there were rocks on it, and then we found, so we couldn't go forward. And we couldn't go backward because that happened behind us. So we were sort of trapped. Am I telling this accurately, Paul? Paul was there. What, do you, what do you think, guys? This is, 
I'm not embellishing yet too far. I probably will. So, so we're, we weren't in danger. Were we in da- I don't think we were in danger. <laughs> this is correct. This is absolutely correct. When we first went in this route, everything was fine, but then we got trapped in between. And we could see from the bus, it was quite amazing to see, it was like waterfalls uh, falling off the cliffs in the Judean wilderness. That's where, It's largely dry, but here, here came all this water. And so we're just outside, some of us having fun, taking pictures. There are Israelis there and stuff like that. We're just talking, and all of a sudden, one of our guys... Uh, from West Texas, a younger guy, takes off through the mud, and and we look, and our guide, Ronnie, says, well, who was that? What is he doing? Is he one of us? I said, yeah, yeah. What is he doing? I said, well, he's going to do something about this so that we don't have to die here on the road. He's not like one of you wimpy Israelis. He's from, as I told him, um, uh, he's from West Texas. The next thing you know, this guy Paul is down the road lifting these big old rocks off the road, tossing them off, and a couple Israelis joined in with him, and our bus got through. That's how we did it. Pretty good. Takes a Texan. But we had to go uh, a circuitous route. We had to go all the way back to Jerusalem and around and down to a place called Arad, which is mentioned in the Bible. It's an ancient city. Near Beersheba or Beersheba, where Abraham was, the Negev Desert, and then from the south up to our hotel. So about two and a half hours later, we got to the hotel. We were tired. We were sick of being on the bus. But our attitudes, I think, were pretty good, don't you think? Not too bad. John's not so much. Yeah, what are you going to do? But most of us did all right. Anyway, just a rich, rich blessing. And I'll tell you what one of the richest blessings is to me and I think to others who go to Israel. When you get back, you have an appetite for scripture um, that is enhanced. I hope you don't need to go to Israel to have an appetite for scripture. Uh, but the appetite for scripture is enhanced. Why? Because when you read it, it takes you back to the areas you have just visited. Now, that happened to me over the last few days as I settled in to study Genesis 15. And and I'll show you what I mean. So can you turn to Genesis 15? That's where we are. Uh, Brother Chuck finished uh, Genesis 14. And so if I have this right, we're in Genesis 15 today. And I'll I'll tell you what happened to me as I was as I was studying this particular text. Uh, by the way, you know, there's all, uh, while you're turning all kinds of safety concerns about traveling to Israel, and I'm not saying there are um, unfounded for crying out loud it's a hot spot and yet you could ask anyone in our group you don't have to ask me um, about the safety the sense of safety while there it's just different than what you see on the news now things can break out well they will break out i think on a large scale i think i think before long israel will be attacked by a multinational force once again I think this is going to happen. I don't know this by dream or vision, uh, just by evaluating this situation. So, so that's, that's a reality. But as far as being in the land of Israel before that happens, uh, I don't think you can be safer in any other place, to tell you the truth. Uh, things just don't happen there the way, the way they do in our major American cities. So... You could ask anyone in our group. The uh, safety concerns are a little 
exaggerated. Okay, so Genesis 15, here we go, verse 1. Look, after these things, is that how your chapter begins? After these things. So when you read something like that, you are obligated to back up, are you not? It's an interesting chapter division. This one begins with this note, after these things. So you have to try to remind yourself, what are the these things? Well, in Genesis 14, a lot of very interesting things happened, one of which was Abram. He wasn't called Abraham yet. Abram rescued his relative Lot. And I often wonder why. Let him go. You know, Lot was just a creep, I think. Don't you think he was a creep? But he's family. What are you going to do? So Abraham went after him to bring him back. And so we read this in Genesis 14, 14. Look, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, there were four kings who got together to do this. So four kings against Abram. They took uh, Lot captive. When Abram heard about it, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318 and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So I spent four years in seminary, and I remember studying Genesis and so on, and Dan meant nothing to me. But we were in Dan just a few days ago. Some of you have been there already. It's called Tell Dan today. A tell is not a natural feature. It's man-made. It looks like a rounded, almost perfectly rounded hill, And it consists of layers of civilization, one built on the preceding one, until it becomes overgrown, and it looks like a natural feature, but is not. And you say, why do civilizations do that? Well, let's say there's a a founding civilization in the area. They chose the spot maybe because it's already elevated, good for defense, near a water source. The next civilization that conquered it finds the same benefits of the location elevation and water source. So they build on the ruins of the civilization they just destroyed and so on. So some of these tells have layers, um, 20, 30 layers of different civilizations. It's an archaeological treasure trove because the archaeologists can dig into the tell and date the levels of civilization based on pottery that they find. So Tel Dan is where we visited. It's on the Lebanese border. So from this place, we were able just to stand uh, at Tel Dan. We were able to look right into residential areas in Lebanon. It's just, it's just that close. And so why is it called Dan? Well, it's named after the founder, the leader of the tribe of Dan. But in my opinion, they should never have been that far north. Why? Because that was not the allotted territory given to Dan as one of the tribes of Israel. The territory bequeathed to Dan by God was much further south between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea on the west. Well, why didn't Dan stay in its allotted territory? Well, the scripture states because there were Philistines in the land and they had iron chariots. The Philistines were a seafaring people coming probably from the Aegean Sea, Greek islands, seeking for whatever reason a new place to live. They settled on the Mediterranean coast. Philistines, by the way, that's where you get the word Palestine or Palestinian. It emanates from the Philistines, Israel's perennial 
enemies. Anyway, they were metallurgists. Israel was not. But the Philistines could use metal. They had iron chariots. So the Danites looked at this and they said, holy Toledo, what a hassle. Let's check out some other real estate. So they sent about five guys north on a reconnaissance mission. And they brought back a positive report. And they said, oh, we have spied out the land. Really cool, fertile. No one's going to mess with us. Let's go there. So they moved north to Dan, I think, uh, contrary to the will of God. And Dan became the most idolatrous tribe of Israel. Why? Because where they were, many people groups passed through. And so uh, the Danites became influenced by the false religions and idolatry of many other religious groups. It's just an example of people doing what seemed right, for sure, in their own eyes, but which ends up being contrary to the will of God. Anyway, so when I read this passage, and I think others could say the same, oh my goodness, you're taken back to your real-life experience on this site. You can see the topography and the geography, and you, you have the lay of the land, so the scriptures become absolutely enhanced. I say that to tell you, if you have a chance to go to Israel, it could be with anyone. It doesn't matter who you go with. I hope you take advantage of it if you're a student of the Bible, because when you come back, it will not read uh, the same way as it. I spent four years in seminary, and I'm so grateful for the experience. But two weeks in Israel actually got me closer to the time and culture and atmosphere of the Bible than four years in a seminary classroom. You know, it's limited when you're in a classroom. You're looking at maps, but when you're, when you're on the site, that's, that's a, Ken, um, uh, Ken was with us in, in Israel and apparently he's still on Israel time because buddy, we started like a half an hour. We're still, oh, you're early wise guy. So, so Ken is a pilot and we all got a kick for what area? Southwestern. Or Southwest, yeah. Southwest is, is the seminary. I get those confused. But anyway, we all enjoyed Ken having to go through the hassle of security checks and sitting in these tiny seats and uh, eating rabbit food and stuff like that. Ha ha. <laughs> Are you sleeping at all? You're, 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 you're making it? Okay. Some of our folks... Uh, have permission to fall asleep during this class because we're, we're still not adjusted. Okay, so after these things, these are the things that took place in Genesis 14. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Can God speak in visions? Of course he could. In dreams? Of course he could. It would be wrong for someone to put God in a box, it seems to me to tell God what he can and cannot do. However, I don't think it's wrong for someone to say, proceed with caution when you're receiving dreams and visions. Why do I say that? Because Satan can put thoughts in your mind as well. And, and I think it's all right for me to say, though I do not think dreams and visions have discontinued. I do not believe that. I think it's safe to say, in Abram's day, he didn't have what we have, 66 books, of inspired, inerrant, authoritative scripture. So at different times in history, God communicated primarily in different ways. I do not think God's primary means of communicating with us today are dreams and visions. 
that could happen. Don't misunderstand. I just don't think it's God's primary way. Why? His primary way of communication is are, are the 66 books of written revelation which he has given us. And frankly, they're better than dreams and visions. I'll tell you why. I can ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, as I did. And we could, with a measure of objectivity, evaluate it and look at it together. On the other hand, I could tell you last night, God spoke to me in a dream. I hope you will be respectful if I shared that and listen to me. But you cannot objectively evaluate the veracity and accuracy of my dream. Because by definition, it's personal to me. It's a subjective means of revelation. No subjective means of revelation has the weight of authority and certainty that the objective means of revelation written scripture has. So I would just caution you, don't go to one extreme or the other. Don't say God doesn't anymore, but don't say God always speaks to me in dreams. I would be careful about the frequency of hearing from God that way when, in fact, he has given us objective, written, and scripturated revelation, which was not available to those who primarily received dreams and visions. So, okay. In Abram's day, the word of the Lord came to him in a vision, saying, do not fear, Abram. And you ask yourself the question, wait a second. He just won victory over a coalition of four kings. He succeeded in rescuing his kidnapped relative. What is it that Abraham has to fear? So that God would say, don't fear. Well, how about this? How about retaliation on the part of those kings? Abraham won round one, but there's always round two. Maybe he's fearful about them coming after him. Not only that. When he returned, someone called the king of Sodom. Sodom is south of the Dead Sea. Abraham went from there all the way north to Dan. Have you heard the expression from Dan to Beersheba? Dan is the north, it's used in the Bible, uh, to indicate the northernmost extent of ancient Israel, Dan, and the southernmost, Beersheba. In essence, Abram went from the extreme south around Sodom, all the way north to Dan. How did he pull it off? Folks, it's about 150 miles from the northern extent of Israel to the southern. It's a dinky bit of real estate, narrow real estate, which begs the question, why so much interest in this particular real estate? It's because of spiritual reasons. It has nothing to do with geopolitics. That's why the world's leaders can't fix it. It has nothing to do with geopolitics. Listen, folks, Satan knows the Bible, and he knows not only that the king, Jesus, was born there, uh, crucified, buried, and resurrected. This is the part he dislikes most. He also read that Jesus is coming back to that place. He found out that Jesus is going to receive worship there. This is repulsive to the anti-Messiah. Uh, to the one who would be king, but who is not. 
Therefore, he has to wrest control of the land from the Lord Jesus and the people whom the Lord has put in the land so that Satan can receive worship in the land. The explanation for what's happening in the Middle East is spiritual. It has nothing to do with geopolitics. Anyway, so Abraham comes off this major victory, but when he gets back, the king of Sodom offers him booty, some material reward from the victory. Abraham refuses it. You can read this in the prior chapter. He said, no, 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 no. I don't want anyone to imagine that I've been enriched by you. I want them to see all that I have has been given graciously by God. I want God to get the glory. I don't want to have to say you made me wealthy. I want people to see that God provided. But I wonder now if he's fearing not only retaliation by the four kings whom he defeated, but also I wonder if he's wondering about, oh, my goodness, now that I opened my big trap, who's going to provide for me in the future? So he has two concerns which we share, provision and protection. If you think about it, those concerns are common to humankind. We want to be safe and we want to be supplied. God knows this, so notice what he says. I am a shield to you. I am your protection. Your reward shall be very great. I am your provision. See it? He addresses both of those needs. By the way, you see the two words, I am, hugely important. It's an antidote for our I am not. (laughs) Look, I am, says God, sufficient, all-knowing, sovereign, powerful, good, in control. I am these things. We overhear, I am weak. I have a proclivity to sin. I am limited. I am fearful. I am timid. timid. I have flaws. But the, the antidote to what I am not is who God is. So, so folks, it's okay to know who you are and who you're not. I am not, fill in the blank. But if you get preoccupied with it, you're going to sink into deep depression. I know this as a fact. Don't do that. The antidote for the I am nots is, I am God, I am not, but you are everything I need you to be. You are my shield and my reward. In saying, I am your shield, God essentially is saying, I will offer you protection as a shield protects a soldier. So here's what happens. Tell me if you think this is accurate. Oftentimes after an emotional high, even a spiritual emotional high, there's a letdown and you can get depressed. So you go to a rich, say, Christian conference, great worship and sermons and all, you're high. But then you come home to real life <laughs> and it's sort of an automatic kind of a letdown. So, so you can get dark and gloomy. You come back from Israel <laughs> and, you, and you get home and you say, oh my goodness, now I've got to cut the grass. Take out the garbage. You know, back to earth. So so this is kind of a letdown. This is sort of normal. It's not normal if it's prolonged. It's normal if it's temporary. I think that happened to Abram. He comes off an emotional high for crying out loud. He wins victory over four kings. He succeeds in bringing his relative back home. And now I think he gets a little depressed, a little dark. And so you get verse 2 in which he says, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of 
Damascus. God had just said, I am your shield, I am your great reward. But Abraham is, I think, a little down, emotional. Yeah, thanks God, but I don't have what, you know, thanks for offering me cool stuff. But what good is all your cool stuff? I don't have anyone to give it to. I don't have, yeah, I got this guy named Eliezer. You know, he's, he's from Damascus. You know where Damascus is? It's in Syria. Damascus is in Syria. I got a guy, he's not, he's not from my, the fruit of my loins. He's some dude who lives in my house. And you see, well, what kind of practice is this for Abraham claiming Eliezer is going to be his heir? Well, look at verse 3. Abram said, since thou, now he's kind of blaming God, since thou hast uh, given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Now, where did he come up with this whole practice? Uh, something was discovered in Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, uh, ancient something called the Nuzi tablets, N-U-Z-I, Nuzi. You can Wikipedia it or Google it if you're that kind of person to find out more about it. Anyway, ancients find, and it tells us how people lived um, in ancient days. And one... Um, element of the Newsy tablets indicates if a couple is childless, they can, in essence, adopt a friend or a slave to provide care for them in their old age and even to see to their uh, fit and proper burial, in return for which that one becomes heir of whatever it is they have left. So it looks like Abram's a practice was a bona fide legalized practice centuries ago. No biological offspring. Therefore, somehow, we will, they made contact with this fellow, Eliezer of Damascus. We don't know anything more about him. We know he's from Damascus, modern day Syria. That's all we know. But somehow, Abraham came to be in partnership with this guy. Eliezer is providing services for he and Sarah. Abraham's an He's in his 80s. Sarah is way past childbearing years. Eliezer is providing services. Abram says he's going to be our heir in return. But something happens. Verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man, Eliezer, will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own 80-plus-year-old body, through your uh, your wife, way past childbearing years, he shall be your heir. In essence, God says to Abram, uh, Abram, this is what is required. This is this is fundamentally what faith is. Wait on me to make good my promises to you. So, how do you do about waiting on God's promises? You do, you, you're terrible at it. I know this because you're me and I'm you. I stink at it and so do you. We don't like to wait. I'm de- That's the substance of faith. That's what it is. If God says something, we have to wait for him to deliver the goods. What is our tendency? Well, let me help God out a little bit. Let me, let me bring into existence. Let me father a child, so to speak, in my own Sort of efforts. That gets us into big trouble. But anyway, this is what God says. And then what happens in verse 5? He, God, took him, Abram, outside. Outside of what? 
a tent. They were nomadic during this time in Israelite history. They did not live in homes until after the conquest of Canaan and they learned how the Canaanites lived in simple mud brick structures and they became a little more settled and permanent. But at this time, early on, Abram was a nomad. We have seen modern-day equivalents uh, called Bedouin people. Those are Arab Muslim people, but they're still living today, as did Abram did 4,000 years ago. They have, they're intense, and they move from place to... It's kind of interesting today. It's a little different twist. You can see these Bedouin tents, and then you'll see a satellite dish <laughs> nearby because nobody wants to miss American Idol. I'm telling you this. <laughs> Right now. So anyway, uh, so, so the Lord uh, takes him outside. So the visions he received were inside the tent. But now God wants to do something that requires Abraham be outside the tent. So check it out. God said, now look toward the heavens. Count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So the setting uh, for this changed and so God moved Abram outside. And I wondered, wow, I hope it was a clear night. I mean, it could be overcast. What if he can't see the stars and suddenly dawn on me? Oh, wait just a second. God's sort of in control of this stuff. He didn't have to say, oh, man, the party's ruined. It's raining. I mean, he, I mean, he just controls all this. And then I was reading somewhere, but I'm really off on this. I don't understand science. Uh, I don't spend much time with it. I'm not interested. I don't get it. Uh, so I'm like a bad guy. But I read something because I was trying to study that astronomers have a book, like a common table of stars, and there are like 30,000 identified and named stars in it. But the astronomers say that doesn't even scratch the surface. Those are identified named stars. It's called something. I forgot. Uh, but they say they're like, in the last class I said 100 billion stars, and a guy who is a scientist told me, no, 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 no far in excess of that. So the, the point is, just like a lot of stars. That's the point. And what's the point? God didn't actually think Abram can count them. That's not the point. He was saying, Abram, you got nothing going on. You think all you got is Eliezer from Damascus. I'm telling you, I, I, I promise you, I'm going to bring forth from you and Sarah such a multitude of progeny, offspring. You can't even count them. That's essentially what what's going on. And so uh, then something happens in verse 6. Then he, Abram, believed in the Lord. So I got to tell you something. Verse 6, in my opinion, is perhaps one of the most key and significant verses in the entire Old Testament. Genesis 15, verse 6. If you're a scripture memorizer, you might want to memorize this one. I'll tell you why. It's the gospel according to Moses. It is the identical plan by which a person can be saved, as you and I find in the New Testament. And the reason it is so significant is to demonstrate to us that it's always been this way. There's always been one way to be saved. God has not changed his mind. It's the same way for Abram as it is for us as it is for all peoples in all places. So he, Abram, then, then he believed in the Lord. That implies 
uh, prior to this, he did not fully believe in the Lord. And that's true. If you back up to verses 2 and 3, you find out he had some doubts. You know, God is saying, I'm going to take care of business. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. And Abram's into, yeah, but I don't even have a kid. You see, it's, it's called the yes, but game. That is someone who hears God's promise and offer and dismisses it, essentially rejects it, doubting the whole thing. So initially, Abram didn't have the kind of faith that God would reckon to him as righteousness. But now he believed, it says. Then, somehow, God took him outside, showed him the stars, made a promise to him, and said, look at this, you can't count them. Such will your descendants be. Somehow, I don't know what the formula is with Abram. I don't know what it was with me, but with most of you. Somehow, the it, things click, the penny drops, and you realize, yes, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. So that's what he did. Then he believed in the Lord. And what did God do? By the way, the word believed, it means to lean your whole weight upon. Abram's a shaky dude. He's concerned about his future. He has no biological heir and all the rest. God makes him a promise not only of a son, but of a whole people group. What does Abraham do? I don't know. It seems far-fetched. Have you seen Sarah lately? Are you kidding me? And, you know, he's going through all these... But he doesn't do that. You know what he does? He leans wholly into God's promise. He puts his entire weight... On God's see, biblical faith is not. Gee, I think I have faith it'll work out. I have faith you're going to get the job. I have faith you're going to arrive safely in wherever you're going. I mean, that's wishful thinking. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is a personal leaning into a very specific promise of provision from God. That's what Abraham did. He's, I'm going to just lean. God is like a million reasons why I should doubt. You know, people think I'm crazy. This doesn't make any sense. God, you're promising you're going to pull something off that is a biological impossibility. Doesn't matter to me. You're God. You can do, I'm just leaning. That's what I mean. I'm just leaning. I'm not resting in my own understanding. I'm not going to talk myself out of what you just said. I'm resting in your promise. So that's what he does. And what does God do? Then he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Reckoned. It's an accounting term. God put a valuation on what Abram did. God put a high value on what Abram did. What did Abram do? He believed. And God took it and, and, and he took assets, if you will, put it on Abram's accounting ledger to overwhelm his deficits. That's what he did. You see, what in the world? Abraham didn't do anything to earn this. That's right. Abraham didn't jump through any hoops. That's right. Abraham didn't make vows. Prom- That's right. That's right. Abraham didn't clean up his act. Yeah, 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 yeah. You got it. He believed God, and God puts a high value on people taking him at his word. Listen to me. You're no different. You say something to someone. You give them your, your word. You promise them something. And someone looks you in the eye and says, yeah, right. Someone doesn't believe you. How do you feel about that person? You don't like that person. You don't want to hang out. You're not right. That person's not right with you. That person has just doubted you. How much more God? I'll tell you the thing that turns God off is when we don't believe what he has promised, what he has provided. Once Abram did that, in spite of all of his stuff, good night, he pawned his wife off one time. Remember this? As his sister. I mean, this is not any Mr. Got It Together. Look at me. 
I mean, this is, this is just a slob like you and me for crying out loud. What could I tell you? He gets himself into all kinds of sinful trouble. He has the same sinful nature you and I. You say, but wait just a second. He pulled off a lot of cool stuff, like how about this? He was willing to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, Mount Moriah. We were there, that very place. You say, whoa, that's like a cool deal. He didn't get points for that. He, that's not, that is not the basis upon which God reckoned it to him as righteousness. One thing he believed. Once Abraham accepted God's provision, once he believed, God said, that's all I need. I can change you. I can handle all your problems, your deficits, your flaws, even your sins. And by the way, all your acts of righteousness can't get it done. And I'll tell you why. Because you can't be righteous enough. All have sinned and fall short of the righteousness, the glory of God. Now look, when it says God reckoned it to him as righteousness, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that God saw Abraham to be like a cool dude who had it all together. No, 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 no. This has nothing to do with an inherent quality in Abram, uh, meaning God saw Abram to, to be, to possess the, the quality of right behavior. No, that's not what righteousness is here. It's not right living, it's right standing. What does this mean? Abraham, apart from God reckoning his faith as righteousness, actually stood apart from God. He was at odds with God, just like every one of us. He did not have right standing with God in spite of his right behaviors. Maybe he lived more rightly than you and I. So what? He didn't live rightly enough to be right with God. He was wrong with God. There was a broken relationship. But contingent on his faith in God's word, God made him to stand rightly with him. Now, what happens from right standing? Well, I hope right living. If your position in Christ is suddenly changed, you're no longer on the outs, you're in. You're no longer estranged, you're adopted. You're no longer an adversary, you're a son or a daughter. I hope there's evidence in a changed life. But folks, a changed life does not give you right standing with God. Only he could do that. And once he does that, we spend the rest of our life being thankful to him and praising him. That's why it has to be this way. If it's on any other basis, we'll boast about how right we are. So, folks, I want to tell you something. Every religion believes in the existence of God. That's just the way it is. Every religion. Judaism, Buddhism, Shintoism, everything. Every religion believes in the existence of God. Here's where we part ways. Every religion believes in the existence of God. But what separates them is what they believe about how to be right with that God who exists. So I want to make this statement. Christianity is categorically different from every other religious or faith perspective. We have nothing in common, nothing with any other religious group. You know, people say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. All roads lead to Rome. You know this stuff? That's sheer and utter nonsense. I'll tell you what I mean. Every world religion says, I believe in God, and the way to be right with God is through self-effort. The biblical perspective says, I believe in God, and the only way to be right with God is not by my works, but by the work he did for me. 
big difference. Every world religion is a do-it-yourself approach to God. Do it yourself to be right with God. Christianity is a done-for-you approach to God. Abraham experienced a physical, a biological impossibility. He could take no credit for what would be birthed through him and Sarah. He had to give God the glory. It was all God's doing contingent on Abraham's faith in God's promise. And so too is our salvation. It is a spiritual impossibility for us to be in right standing with God. Good night, folks. Ten commandments. Every one of us here has violated a lot of them if not all of them. It is an impossibility for us to be right with God by doing the right things. But God says, I promise you a means of being right with me, contingent on your faith in what I've done for you, not in what you can do for me. Right standing with God is based on our acceptance of God's promise to us, not us promising God anything. Religions promise God stuff and try to follow through with it. Relationship with Christ says, I accept your promise. I accept your death, burial, and resurrection as the provision for sin. And the only way by which new life can be birthed in me. So folks, this is huge. I made the statement more than one time, there's nothing new in the New Testament. It's just clearer. You're seeing the gospel here in the Old Testament. This is the gospel according to Moses. If you have a Jewish friend and you want to share your faith with them and the Jewish friend doesn't like the New Testament, no problemo. Share Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed in the Lord. And on that basis, he reckoned it to him as Righteousness. In fact, I can show you someone who used this verse to make this very point some 2,000 years after this. It's in Romans chapter 4. So let me ask you to join with me there, Romans chapter 4, just for a few moments. Uh, We've been going through Romans on Wednesday night, none too speedily. but but we're getting there. And some time ago, we went through Romans 4. And I want to show you something. Uh, this verse, Genesis fifteen six, is so important. It is repeated no less than three times by various New Testament writers, one of which is Paul. And you'll see it here, Romans chapter 4. Check it out, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. That tells me he's speaking to Jews in Rome. He's about to make a point to them. He's a great debater, and he's invoking one of the premier Jews, Abraham. He says, what shall we say? Our forefather, according to the flesh. In other words, Abraham, Jewish people, he's saying, is in our line of descent. It goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and all the rest. That makes Jews. So he's, 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 he's quoting here, not from Dr. Joyce Brothers or somebody like that. Doesn't mean anything to Jews. Abraham, the big gun. He's saying, let me, let me, let me quote to you from like the guy who started the whole deal. What has he found? Verse two. If, for if Abraham was justified by works, if he was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does that mean? Look at here. If he did a lot of cool stuff, 
he could brag to the rest of us about all the good things he does. I go to church every Sunday. I go on mission trips. I give a lot of money. I'm a regular giver, whatever. I pray four hours a day. I mean, if he was justified by these works, he sure can boast before us, not before God. Why can't he boast up before God? Because God looks at it and he says, nice try. It's not working. You cannot do enough to accede to my standards. Don't you understand all have sinned and fall so far short of my glory? If he even compared himself to the rest of us mere mortals, okay, he gets higher grades. But if Abraham compares himself to God's perfections, oh my goodness, he fails the class. So that's what Paul says here. Then he says in verse 3 of Romans 4, For what does the scripture say? Could I tell you this? That's one of the most profound questions in all the Bible. For what does the scripture say? Folks, we claim to be people of the book. That ought to settle the matter. What does the scripture say? Could I tell you something? A real sad tendency. The scriptures seem to be mean, mattering less and less to Christians. A recent survey of uh, college-age Christian kids uh, indicated uh, upwards of 60% see absolutely nothing wrong with living together. Um, just trying on each other for size to see if there's compatibility before the commitment of marriage. It makes sense if you think about it. You know, two can live more cheaply than one, you know, check it out, you know, all this kind of, it makes perfect sense. <sighs> but what does the scripture say? So um, we're becoming, especially we Baptists, we will go to war if someone tries to take our Bible away, which I find quite fascinating because we are in increasing measure not even reading it. Do you know that? There's increasing biblical illiteracy uh, um, amongst church people. I know this a lot when I speak to people about marriage and divorce and these very, very tough issues. Uh, it causes great offense. Uh, and people share opinions and thoughts and so on, books, movies, all good sources of information. Don't misunderstand. But not nearly as good as this. What does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? Folks, for Paul, this was the premier, ultimate source of authority. Not his opinion, not people's thinking, uh, not what the pastor says or the, the Sunday school teacher says, not what the latest best-selling Christian book says. I didn't say you should rule out these things. Not what you think or feel. What does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? I'm finding Christians increasingly offended by the biblical perspective when shared with regard to a sensitive area in their life. It's very interesting to me. But Paul says, let's just settle this particular matter by making recourse to scripture. And what does he do? He quotes scripture. I think it'll be familiar to you. And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Does that sound familiar? That's Genesis 15, 6. Thousands of years after the fact, Paul, to make a point, an important point, how could we be safe and right with God, makes recourse to what the scripture said way back in Genesis 15, 6, the very verse under our study today. 
He essentially says, Abram's faith resulted in his right standing with God. It was a credited righteousness, not an earned, merited, or deserved righteousness. That's religion. I can earn my right standing with God. Relationship says, I fall short. Oh, God, have mercy on me. And God says, I will. I promise you reconciliation, redemption, forgiveness, contingent on what I've done for you. Do you accept or reject? If you lean into God's provision through Jesus Christ, you lean wholly on Jesus' name, his death, burial, and resurrection, God reckons that simple trust to our account as righteousness. We are in right standing with God. And Paul is making this point to Jewish religionists and to all people. He's saying, as it was with Abram thousands of years ago, so it is with Jews and Gentiles in Rome, so it is with all people in Houston, Texas in 2014. God's plan of salvation has never, ever changed personal faith in God's provision for our fundamental need How can we be reconciled to God? It's through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. By the word, wait, the word believed in the Hebrew also means to say amen. So God said, Abram, here's my promise. You'll bear, you and Sarah will bear a child from whom you'll have many innumerable descendants. Abram, in essence, said, amen. He could have said, I doubt it. He could have said, you kidding, right? He he could have played all these games. He could have said, okay, cool, but not yet. Not now, you know. Instead, he said a resounding amen. Listen, if you have said the same kind of amen to God's promise to you, I promise to make you mine, to adopt you as a son or daughter, no longer an enemy. I promise to look to you just as if you have not sinned, though you have. I promise to enter your life, change you from the inside out. I promise to make you an heir of mine through adoption. I promise to do all these things, not by looking the other way or grading on a curve. I promise to do all these things as a result of the death, burial, and resurrection of my son on your behalf. What say you? If you say, Amen, God says, done deal. You are now in right relationship with me. What happens then? Well, the evidence of it is that your life changes. (laughs) But you don't change your life to be right with God. Your life changes because you are right with God. Can you see? Can you see the difference? I made this statement in the last class a little overdramatic. Maybe I'm missing it. But if I never come to church anymore, pray, read the Bible, give money, share my faith, I don't think I'm going to forfeit a bit of God's favor. I don't think I'll be any less his son. I don't think I will forfeit my right standing with him. Oh, I think I'll forfeit blessing, opportunity, reward, joy. I understand that. But none of those things secure my right standing with God. He does. I'm not holding on to him. 
My grip is too weak. He's holding on to me. His grip is really, 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 really strong, you see. So as it was with Abraham, so it is with us. Yes, sir. Bill. Oh, yeah. Well said. Bill is saying that God's declaration, tell me if I got this right, of Abraham being righteous was before he did some bad stuff. And he, it persists. He remains secure. You know what else it's before? There's no mention of the law of Moses. We don't even get to the law of Moses till like a few books later. There's nothing to do with the law. You know, eating kosher food and wearing clothing with fringes and, you know, a skull, whatever the deal. There's nothing to do with that. It was reckoned to him as righteousness because he trusted God. He believed God. That's the way it is with us. Yes, sir. Listen, I couldn't have said it better. I baptized that guy. And ever since he was baptized, he's just like a new person. <laughs> Magic one. You were right. This sums it up. That's why I call it the gospel according to Moses. Yes, sir, Randy. No, it's not. A great thought. It looks like it is, but uh, the Hebrew underlying it is a different word entirely. But maybe the sense is the same. You, you know, in that first, the person is trusting in their own understanding. And here God is saying, why don't you just trust me? Same concept, but different underlying words. Folks, um, so we were in Israel. And if you want religion, go to Israel. It's got everything. It has the Baha'i faith. One of the biggest Baha'i temples is in Haifa. It's a magnificent architectural thing. It looks beautiful. It's the beautiful side of evil. It's darkness. So look at the Baha'i faith. Uh, uh, Mormon people have a university there. Uh, lots of Mormon people in Israel. Um, many cult groups. Many more normative religious expressions. Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, uh, Catholic, uh, Baptist. You just, lots of stuff. And of course, every strain of Judaism imaginable. And you walk through the streets and you see people in all kinds of clerical garb. It's just quite fascinating. I think like the Russian Orthodox are the coolest. Oh, my goodness. They have like black um, outer garment from shoulder to feet. Oh, my. And, and they wear like these hats. It makes them look taller. I like that part quite a bit. They wear a big cross on a big chain, big, beautiful cross. And... um it looks like all Russian Orthodox priests have to have the capacity to grow a long beard, which lets me out. I can't, uh, this is it. That's my full growth. What are you going to do? But, I, you know, I looked at these people. Oh, my goodness, outstanding. And then you see f- uh, folks of other religious persuasions. It's really quite, uh, quite fascinating. But any one of us in our born-again group of 50 believers uh, who were there, I assume everyone was a believer, uh, um, in normal garb, you know, you could wear a T-shirt that says "Go Astros" if you have faith. Um, I mean, you could just be you're just looking like a normal 
and be absolutely right with God. Not contingent on any of the trappings of religiosity. I didn't say they're wrong, but they're really wrong as a substitute and they're really potentially distracting. It's not the externals, dietary. You know, my people are into all kinds of dietary laws. You can't eat this, you can't eat that. You know, I'm into nutrition, you know, cool. Eat healthy. But if you think all that gets you brownie points with God, the way you, what you're wearing and what you're eating and... No, 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 no. You know what Paul said? I'm concerned, he said, that your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You could walk through the streets of Jerusalem, the holy city, looking like a normal person from Houston, Texas, and be absolutely right with God as over against all of this ornamentation and religiosity. Why? Because you're better? Oh, no, that's the point. You're so far gone. There's nothing you could do to be right with God. He has to do it. He did it. Do you say amen to it? If you say amen to it, God reckons it to your account as righteousness. Now and forevermore. Let me tell you something. A Christian is the most blessed, fortunate, or to be the most joyous and grateful human being on earth. I hope that's true. And I hope it shows. By the way, in Israel, a man accepted the Lord, a man in our group, and we got to baptize him and then serve him in the communion later on. Both ordinances of our faith. 86 years old in, in, uh, in Israel. Kind of a cool deal. Look, um, Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Can you say amen to that? Then God values that. You're trusting, you're taking him at his word. You're not denigrating his promise. You're not dismissing it. You're leaning into your whole way. And God says, I reckon that to you as the means by which you're in right standing with me. Simple. Ah, That's what makes it hard. It's so simple. We don't believe it. We think we have to participate and contribute. Nothing, 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 nothing. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for all that you've done. We praise you for the totality of our salvation. We are not partners in this. Jesus, you paid it all. We simply, by your grace, have been enabled to say, Amen. Thank you that has blotted out all our sin. Thank you, as you say, though our sin is as scarlet, it shall be white as snow. Thank you for considering us now no longer to be alienated, but in right standing. And as evidence of it, may we engage in right living, not as a have to, but as a want to, and as a thank you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, well, God bless you folks. Lord willing, maybe verse 7 next week.